Last week we finished up our study of Revelation 20 and different views on the millennium mentioned in that chapter. This week we continue in Revelation and we'll be looking at the remaining two chapters of Revelation, which are 21 and 22, which I just read for you. We'll be looking at these chapters over the next four Sunday mornings, God willing. I'm planning to finish Revelation on December 10th. And then on December 17th, we have actually a Presbyterian pastor from Hungary who is coming on vacation with his wife and staying with Mel and I. And I've asked him if he would preach Sunday morning, December 17th, and he's agreed. Uh, so we'll have a special treat to have him preaching for us. And then, God willing, on the 24th, 31st, and first few weeks of January, we'll have some standalone sermons as well as some preaching from other brothers as I'm planning to take some vacation in January. And then, God willing, we'll start a new series when I get back from vacation. But as I said, we'll be in Revelation 21 and 22 for the, the next four Sunday mornings, today and three Sundays after. However, I'm not going to be going through these chapters consecutively, you know, looking at the first section of Revelation 21 and then the second section and so forth. Rather, I will preach four sermons on these two chapters, trying to draw out from the text each time an idea that is present therein. It would be too much to cover all at once, um, but there are some different, distinct ideas which are all important to understand these last two chapters of Revelation. And this morning's big idea will be an application of this very basic truth. There are only two destinies for all mankind. Every person who has ever lived, is presently living, or will ever live, will either end up in the new heavens and the new earth, or the lake of fire, using the language and symbolism or imagery of Revelation 21 and 22. Let's begin this morning's study with a look at the geography of Revelation 21 and 22. In case you didn't catch it, Revelation 21 and 22 is very much describing a place. And so let's kind of try to get in our minds the layout, the geography of what is described in these last two chapters. Now, whether this is literal geography or whether this is symbolic description is not a matter of orthodoxy. I tend to think it's symbolic in keeping with the general paradigm with which I interpret most of the book of Revelation. However, it's symbolism that is teaching us true things. So to suggest that the geography of Revelation 21 and 22 is symbolic is a far cry from saying that Revelation 21 and 22 is a fairy tale or some such thing. At most, Revelation 21 and 22 is a strictly literal description of exactly what the new heavens and new earth will be like and the exact destiny of the unbelieving. At least, or at the least, Revelation 21 and 22, like the rest of Revelation in my view, imparts spiritual truths to us by way of imagery and symbolism. So will we literally walk on streets of gold? 
will people literally be thrown into a lake of fire? I'll leave that up to you to interpret as best as you can. But here's my point. Even if the lake of fire is symbolic, it is symbolic of a literal hell. And the sort of conditions and experience of suffering that we might expect if we go there. Hell is not going to be better than a lake of fire, in other words. Hell is certainly not just an extension of your godless life here and now, as some people conceive of it. Basically going to hang out with your buddies, as it were, and an internal, eternal celebration and indulgence in the sorts of debaucheries that you now partake of. If symbolism, God uses the most extreme sort of imagery that we could fathom to describe the torments of hell. I, I challenge you to think of something worse than a lake of fire. So, even if it is symbolic, the symbol should cause us trembling because it is intended to communicate something true to us about the torment and horrendous experience of those who will end up outside of Christ on the wrong side of God in the end. Likewise, even if the streets of gold are symbolic, they are symbolic of the sort of opulence and grandeur and prosperity and blessedness that will characterize heaven. Ain't going to be no potholes in heaven. And we're not even just dealing with asphalt anymore. Heaven is not even just really nice asphalt roads. The new heavens and the new earth will be, will be characterized by a whole other order of degree and blessedness than we could ever imagine experiencing here and now. Again, it's just to, just to think of streets of gold and how far that is beyond our normal experience gives us an idea of something of the blessedness of it. Can you imagine seeing the Ministry of Transport Works trucks coming along with pure gold instead of asphalt to, you know, to fill in the potholes or to, or to pave new roads or to repave old roads? You know, you would think, man, Barbados has experienced a significant upgrade. It's an unfathomable idea in our present age, even for the most affluent countries, let alone Barbados. It's an, it's an unfathomable idea, even for the most affluent countries, to pave their roads with gold. So, even if symbolism, the gold streets would be teaching us the literal truth that eye hath not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for those that love Him. 1 Corinthians 2.9 The new heavens and the new earth will indeed be very earthy, so to speak, as we will see in an upcoming sermon. We're not just going to live as spirit beings in an ethereal existence for all of eternity. There will be much continuity between this earth and the new earth. But the streets of gold teach us 
if, if, even if only by symbolism, if you interpret it that way, the streets of gold teach us that the new earth will be on a whole different scale than what we experience now, and that it will be, in fact, more than simply this earth repaired from sin's devastation. Now, that being said, I'm not going to belabor this symbolism versus literalism point. Take it, take it as you will, with those caveats and nuances in mind. Let's look at the geography of Revelation 21 and 22 as it's presented to us in the text. First we see in 21.1 that there is a new heavens and a new earth. Then we see in 21.2 that there is a new Jerusalem within the new heavens and the new earth. I saw a new heaven and a new earth, verse 1, and I saw the holy city, verse 2. So two things that he sees. And we further corroborate this idea that the new Jerusalem is not the same thing as the new heavens and the new earth, but is actually a subset of it, if you will. When we look at 21 verses 24 to 26, and we see that there are many people who actually live in the new heavens and the new earth, and yet outside the new Jerusalem, and these do not live in torment, but in blessedness. They walk according to the light that emanates from the new Jerusalem, which comes from God Himself. They get to enjoy the new heavens and the new earth. So outside the new Jerusalem is not, um, I was going to say, is not the lake of fire. Let me put it this way. The lake of fire is outside the new Jerusalem, but it's not the only thing outside the new Jerusalem. Outside the new Jerusalem is actually the rest of the new heavens and the new earth, where people live in blessedness and get to enjoy the new heavens and the new earth. So the new heavens and new earth are larger than just the new Jerusalem. And the new Jerusalem is just a city within the new heavens and the new earth. That being said, it's our gargantuan city. We read in 21 verse 16 that the city is 12,000 stadia. If you look in your footnotes, that is about 1,380 miles. Alright, so did a little bit of work on Google Maps this week. Its dimensions, the dimensions of the New Jerusalem, are roughly equivalent. Obviously, I couldn't find exact equivalencies here. But the dimensions of the New Jerusalem, just to help us wrap our minds around it, are roughly equivalent to the distance from Barbados to Nassau, Bahamas on one side, then from Nassau to Mexico City. I'm doing this backwards, aren't I? From Barbados to Nassau, then from Nassau to Mexico City, then from Mexico City to Panama City, Panama, then from Panama City, Panama, back over to Barbados. Okay, that's how big the New Jerusalem is in Revelation 21. Moreover, the walls of the city are equidistant to the length, or sorry, the, or their height is equidistant to their length, making the city a perfect cube. 
So each of the walls extends that high up. And that will lead us out of the atmosphere, which is 60 miles approximately, by the way. So we would basically be going 1,320 miles out of Earth's present atmosphere with the walls of this city. And so, since the walls of the city are as high as their length, according to Revelation 21:16, that makes the city a perfect cube. And more on that in an upcoming sermon. But for today's purpose, just note that the New Jerusalem, though just a city within the new heavens and the new earth, is clearly a central feature of the new heavens and the new earth. It's not like a backwater province of the new heavens and the new earth. It's very clearly the dominant feature of the new heavens and the new earth. And it is the place where God resides in a special way within the new heavens and the new earth. According to Revelation chapter 22 and verse 3, the throne of the God, the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. It is described in these chapters not only in terms of its immensity, but also in terms of its extravagance and glory. There are precious jewels of every kind adorning it. And as already mentioned, even its streets are gold. So we have the new heavens and the new earth, and within that we have the new Jerusalem. All of this is blessedness. But not every place in Revelation 21 and 22 is pleasant and desirable. There is an outside mentioned in chapter 22, verse 15. Outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and sexually immoral and so on and so forth. And if we read that in its immediate context, that following verse 14, we might infer that simply outside the city is all these people who are rejected from coming into the city. But, as I already showed you, there are people in 21, chapter 21, verses 24 to 26, who live outside the New Jerusalem, and yet nevertheless enjoy the light of God's presence and the privilege of coming in and out of the city. And so, when we read about a terrible outside, even though the grammar of verses 14 and 15 might initially indicate that it's just simply outside the city, I think we would have to say that the outside is actually not just outside the city, but outside of the new heavens and the new earth, outside of the new creation entirely. For the whole new heavens and new earth are described as being a place of blessedness. Everything about the new heavens and the new earth is, behold, I have made all things new. There's no more mourning, there's no more crying. This is the inheritance of, as we will see, those who are in Christ. And so outside seems to be outside of the new creation entirely. The outside is implicitly the same place as the lake of fire mentioned in chapter 21 and verse... Eight, which is put to us this in further corroboration of this point which is put to us as being outside the new heavens and the new earth we see the new heavens and the new earth descending from heaven well sorry not descending from heaven the new Jerusalem descending from heaven I saw a new heaven and new earth 21.1 
And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. That's the theme of the beginning of 21. All right? Verse 7, and this is all described as blessed, right? Behold, I am making all things new, no more tears, no more mourning, etc., etc. Verse 7 of chapter 21 says, The one who conquers will have this heritage. What heritage? The new heavens and the new earth. The new Jerusalem. Tears wiped away, so on and so forth. And then, verse 8 introduces a contrast. But, though some people will have the new heavens and the new earth, the blessedness of seeing all things made new, the new Jerusalem where God is the light, and so on and so forth. But, verse 8, as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, etc., etc., their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Which implies, I think, that that's not part of the new heavens and the new earth. That it's something outside. So in summary of the geography of Revelation 21 and 22, there is a new Jerusalem within a new creation and the whole new creation is a place of blessedness. Anyone that gets to be in the new creation is blessed. Gets to enjoy having their tears wiped away and so on and so forth. But outside of that is a lake of fire, which is a place of torment. I think that's the way it's put to us in Revelation 21 and 22. This is the way that the geography of it all is described. Let's look now at the population of each place, respectively starting with the population of the new creation. And the first thing that we should note is that God dwells in. God is central to the description of the new creation in Revelation 21 and 22. He is the very light of the place. His throne is not only the source of light in that place, but is also the headwaters to the river which runs through the middle of the city. So God dwells there. And I think we can infer safely that the angels who dwell with God presently in heaven will be there in the new creation since God's dwelling will be there. So there is God and there is the heavenly beings in this new creation. Heaven is essentially there now. And of course, there's mankind. God's dwelling place will be with man, we read. But not all mankind. Sure, there are people saved from every tribe and language and people and nation, as we saw back in Revelation 7. There are Jews and Gentiles together in this new creation, as symbolized by the names of the tribes of Israel, as well as the names of the apostles of the Lamb on the new Jerusalem in Revelation 21, verses 12 to 14. But there are many from among mankind who are not saved, as we will see in greater detail momentarily. Those who are saved are described as the thirsty in Revelation 21. In verse 6, Jesus stood up on the great day of the feast and said, 
Whoever thirsts, let him come to me. The first descriptor of the people in the new heavens and the new earth. The first descriptor in Revelation 21.6 is that they are the thirsty. They are those who have come to Jesus for the quenching of their thirst. They have conquered, as God puts it in Revelation 21.7, which denotes not a triumphalistic self-deliverance, but rather a victory over Satan and his hordes by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony, as Revelation 12 and verse 11 puts it. Those who dwell in the new creation are implicitly clean, since nothing unclean will ever enter the new Jerusalem according to chapter 21 and verse 27. These people are God's servants. Chapter 22 and verse 3. Those who dwell in the new earth are also righteous, which is a clear implication of Revelation 22:11, which contrasts the righteous with the evildoer. And they are described as those who wash their robes in Revelation 22 and verse 14. These people are the bride of Christ, Revelation 22, verse 17. And it is they who dwell with God in the new creation. Or really the grammar of it is, it is they whom God comes to dwell with in the new creation. So that's the populace of the new creation. God, angels, and His people. Now let's look at the population of the lake of fire. Revelation has already told us that the beast and the false prophet will be thrown in there. Revelation 19.20 Moreover, Satan himself is thrown in. Revelation 20 and verse 10 Presumably and implicitly all other fallen angels are also thrown in there too. And again... Some of mankind are there. As some of mankind are in the new creation, some of mankind are in the lake of fire. Those of mankind who are not clean, implicitly. Who are evildoers, as Revelation 22 and verse 11 says, in contrast with those who are righteous. Those who are cowardly, faithless, detestable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, dogs, liars, those who love and practice falsehood, all these shall have their portion in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death, according to Revelation chapter 21 and verse 8. So there are only two destinies for mankind. This is how it's put to us in these last two chapters. You either end up in the new creation or you end up in the lake of fire. At this juncture, I'd like to point out something important, though, which is this. There is an asymmetry regarding earning or meriting our respective destinies. Symmetry is when something is balanced, the same on both halves, identical and opposite, as it were. So coins are asymmetrical because on one side is heads and the other side is tails, right? But people, they've done studies and apparently people with more symmetrical faces are perceived as being more beautiful 
So you might think of, you know, the stereotype Brad Pitt or something like this. If you were to draw a line down the middle of his face, say, boy, you got a mirror image, man. The ears are the exact same height and size, you know, so on and so forth. Symmetry is when it's balanced, the same on both sides, the same on both halves. Asymmetry is when it's lopsided in some way or differs in some way, one side from the other. And there is an asymmetry, it's not balanced, it's not the same on both sides. There is an asymmetry regarding earning or meriting our respective destinies. See, those who end up in the lake of fire get what they deserve. They don't deserve better. This is the way the Bible puts it to us. They're not there because of some conspiracy against them. I've been framed. Right? Like no one in jail is actually guilty, right? If you talk to guys that are incarcerated, a good number of them are bad. <laughs> You know, if, my, if this guy didn't rat or snitch or this guy didn't frame me or this or that or like they didn't understand, you know, I didn't really do it, it wasn't the way it seemed to be, blah, 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 there's always, no one is in the lake of fire who's been framed. No one is, is in the lake of fire who didn't do it. No one's been wrongfully convicted. No one's been wrongfully incarcerated. It is just that everyone who is there, is there. The wages of sin is death, as the scripture puts it. The wages of Shaphat are one thing. The wages of an MP are another thing. Right? The wages of an astronaut are another thing. But you get what you have earned from doing the job. And the wages of sin is death. What you earn when you sin is death. So everybody who ends up in the lake of fire is there because they've earned it. However, it is not true, conversely, that everyone who ends up in the new creation has earned it. It's not true, conversely, that everyone who ends up in the new creation deserves it. They did not earn their place there. They are not there by their own merits. What does the whole verse say? The wages of sin is death, but the wages of obedience to God is eternal life. Is that how it goes? Come on, somebody. The wages of sin is death, but the, but the gift of God is eternal life. You see how the asymmetry is right there in that verse. It doesn't say the wages of one thing is this and the wages of another thing is that. There is an asymmetry in the way the Bible talks about these things. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. And this is what I'm trying to bring out. Those who end up in the new creation are not there because they work for a different company than those who end up in the lake of fire. Those who end up in the new creation are not there because they work for a different employer. Those who end up in the new creation are not there because they work a different kind of job 
in a different kind of industry. And the workers of unrighteousness get the lake of fire, and the workers of righteousness get the new creation. You realize that's how a lot of people perceive Christianity. But that's not how it is. It's not the wages of sin is death, and the wages of obedience is eternal life. It's the wages of sin is death, and the gift of God is eternal life. It is by grace that all those who end up in the new creation get there. It is by grace they have been saved through faith. And that not of themselves. It is a gift of God. Not of works. Lest no one may boast. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. This is what all of Scripture teaches us. This asymmetry. But this raises an important and legitimate question. What about words and phrases like we read in Revelation 2.11 about the contrast between the righteous and the evildoer. Between the filthy and the holy. Let the evildoer still do evil. Let the filthy still be filthy. Let the righteous still do right and the holy still be holy. Or what about blessed are those who wash their robes that they may have the right to the tree of life. Revelation 22.14 Are we just parroting the old Puritans and reformers when we say that there's asymmetry and that we're, we can't talk about earning your way there when it seems to be right here in the text? It's the righteous who go to the new creation. It's those who wash their robes who end up there. It's those who wash their robes that have the right to the tree of life. One could be forgiven if this was the only page of Scripture he had for thinking that, hey, the way you get there is to be righteous. Wash your robes. Earn it. You see how it seems to say that on the face of the text, right? Don't these things imply that the people in the new creation got there by washing their robes? by being righteous. What I'm about to explain is a crucial point to understand. And it's what distinguishes true Christianity from every distortion of Christianity as well as from every other religion. When we read the Bible as a whole, which is how we ought to do theology, by the way, you don't just pick one page. I mean, if you were just in an unreached place and a page ripped out of a Bible and blew to you, that's all you had, well, you do what you can. But when we have the whole canon, we read the whole canon. And we read the whole Bible, and we don't build our theology off of just one page to the exclusion of all the other pages. When we read the whole Bible, we see that the Bible clearly teaches that you don't have to wash your robes so to speak, and become righteous before you can be made right with God. In other words, before you can be reconciled to God. Rather, all of our best attempts to do so, to wash our robes and get righteous, would simply be filthy rags. 
in God's estimation, according to Isaiah the prophet. So the scripture teaches us a shocking thing, which is this. And if you don't believe that it's shocking, go talk to someone who doesn't know much about Christianity and tell them this. God justifies the ungodly. Direct quote, Romans chapter 4 and verse 5. See, it's shocking because people think that the way it works is symmetry. The wages of sin is death, and the wages of obedience to God is eternal life. That's the way people think. The bad people go to the lake of fire, and the good people go to the new creation. And so when you say, no, 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 that's not how it works. Actually, what, how, the way it works is that God justifies the ungodly. That's shocking because it really changes the way we think about Christianity. Here's how it works. God counts Christ's righteousness as if it was ours. And God counts Christ's death as if it was ours. And on the basis of what Jesus has done, He therefore counts our sin as having already been atoned for. And He considers us righteous in His estimation, even while we ourselves are still actually sinners. Ungodly. At that moment, with the righteousness of Christ imputed to us, that's the theological word, credited to us as if it was ours, and with the propitiatory death of Christ also imputed to us, counted as if we had died, bearing the penalty that we deserve for our sin. We are still ungodly. In that moment, we haven't yet changed. But in that moment, for Christ's sake, God justifies us. This is what it means that God justifies the ungodly. Our justification is apart from any works on our part. Before we do anything, without any consideration of anything we've done, God justifies the ungodly. There is no earning involved on our part. Jesus has done everything necessary for our justification. That being said, when God justifies us, He also gives us, at the same time, a new heart. There is no one who is justified who does not have a new heart. And that new heart begins to hate sin more and more. And to love Jesus more and more. Something like a baby who's born into the world somewhat weak. It strengthens as time goes on. Something like this is how the change happens in our lives. There's a new principle of life and it gets stronger and stronger as time goes on. So that we hate sin more and more. We love righteousness more and more because we love Jesus more and more. As we go along through life then, we become more and more righteous. We wash our robes, as it were. This is what genuine Christianity looks like over a long enough span of time. Watch a Christian, a genuine Christian over 
years. And you will see a trend toward righteousness. Even though we don't do it perfectly and may spend seasons of our lives treading water or even backsliding. You watch a genuine Christian over years and you will see a trend toward righteousness. You will see someone who is washing his robes or her robes. Someone who does not wash his robes and does not become increasingly righteous, let me put it to you very plainly, is not a Christian. Simple as that. Is a counterfeit Christian. Yes, we have our remaining corruption. So we don't do it perfectly. 1 John 1 says that anyone who says he does not sin is a liar and makes God a liar. When we sin, pardon me, so when we sin, we confess our sin. Instead of loving and practicing falsehood. As, as, uh, me, as Revelation says, those outside do. Those who end up in the lake of fire, they love and practice falsehood. But we don't. So when we sin, we confess our sin. And if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 1 John 1.9 When we sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. 1 John chapter 2 and verse 1 And this process of growing in righteousness, confessing our sins along the way, washing our robes, as it were, This process is something that every true Christian does. Such that it is legitimate to say in broad terms, as Revelation 22 does, that Christians are not evildoers, but righteous. Such that it is legitimate to say in broad terms, as Revelation 22 does, that Christians wash our robes. We do not persist and wallow in our sin indefinitely, though we may struggle with particular sins for extended seasons. As John says in his epistle, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. So, though we ought not to trust in our righteousness as any kind of earning or meriting salvation, if we are true Christians, given a long enough span of time, we will grow in righteousness. We will wash our robes. If this does not describe you, you ought to tremble. This brings us to our application of the main idea that there are only two destinies for mankind. 
the new creation or the lake of fire. And that application is simply this. Where will you end up? Do you love and practice what is false? Think about that. That's actually, I think, one of the most concerning phrases if we're, if we're serious about examining our souls here. Do you love and practice what is false? Are you claiming to be something that you are not? Are you a liar? A hypocrite? Are you cowardly? It's astounding to me that this is a mark of those who will burn. And yet the implication is clear. Courageously own and testify of Christ. Are you continuing in faithlessness, idolatry, sexual immorality? Listen carefully. If you are not purifying yourself as God is pure, as John puts it in 1 John 3.3, 3, if you are not washing your robes, if you are persisting in pornography, fornication, adultery, idolatry, which may mean bowing down in front of blocks of wood and stone, or it may mean pursuing the American dream above all. If you are acting like a good Christian when your heart is far from God, thereby loving and practicing what is false, etc., etc. You can look, you can just look at these lists. Listen, if you persist there, you stay there, doesn't matter what church you're a member of. Doesn't matter what box you take on the census, Christian, Buddhist, Muslim, whatever. You persist there. Stay there where you are in those sins. You don't wash your robes. Not growing in righteousness. You are a counterfeit Christian. You will end up in the lake of fire. You will get what you deserve for the falsehood, for the sexual immorality, for the idolatry, and so on and so forth. The application, however, if that's you and you're like, whoa, I'm lost. The application here is not just for you to pull yourself up by your bootstraps and do better so you can earn a place in God's new creation. That would be to fail to apply the asymmetry that we talked about and recognize that you can't earn your way there. The application is for you, lost sinner, who realizes that you are on your way to the lake of fire. The application is for you first to despair of your righteousness. You have none. Trust only in the earning and merit of Jesus. This is loving and practicing the truth. Not calling God a liar for saying that you have sin. For saying, yeah, God's right for saying that I have sin. Truth. 
Not saying I have no sin, which is a lie, but saying, yeah, I do have sin. I'm lost. Despair of your own righteousness and trust in Jesus. Trust what He has done. Trust that His righteousness is sufficient for you. Trust that His atoning death is sufficient for you. Then having been justified by grace alone, apart from your works, apart from your righteousness, apart from your earning, start living the genuine Christian life. When I was a kid, there used to be these cereal boxes that had like contests and you would collect 10 of the UPC codes, 10 of the barcodes or whatever. And then you'd send them in to get a prize. But if you read the terms and conditions carefully, I don't, and I don't know why this was in there, but I don't know what the legal mumbo jumbo was. But if you read the terms and conditions carefully, it would say you had to send in 10 UPCs or reasonable facsimiles, which means, I guess, close enough to a UPC. I, listen, I'm not trying to explain how that contest worked or why the legal team put that in there. What I am trying to say is this. God does not accept reasonable facsimiles. So if you go through this life looking like a reasonable facsimile of a genuine Christian, you might get to join a church. You might become a pastor. You might get the praise and adoration and respect of your co-workers, your neighbors, your congregation, whatever. But in the trying to present a reasonable facsimile instead of a genuine article, by definition, you are loving and practicing what is false. So having been justified by grace alone, through faith alone, the genuine Christian starts living the genuine Christian life. Growing in righteousness. Washing his robes. Confessing his sins along the way. And thereby living in the truth instead of falsehood. That's what real Christianity looks like. Which is why Revelation can describe Christians this way. Say the people that wash the robes, the righteous, they populate the new earth. Let us not trust in our robe washing or righteousness for our justification. Get that clear in your mind. But neither let us conceive of genuine Christianity in such a way that we view robe washing and righteousness as something we can opt out of if we prefer to remain in our sin. Those whom God justifies by grace alone, apart from works, He also changes such that they are marked by robe washing and righteousness, including confession of sin, because we do it imperfectly. Loving and practicing the truth instead of loving and practicing falsehood. Only those who live thus are genuine Christians. Which means that only those who live thus 
may hope to have a place in the new creation.